0: And so, if you're just joining us, we've gone through James chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And today, we're going to get through, Lord willing, James chapter 4. And again, I know I mention it a lot, but I, I'm, I now understand why the phrase James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. I, I really understand that. Uh, last week was a, for the most part, last week was, was pretty... Uh, familiar to us, the the tongue, bridling the tongue and making sure we understand what Christian speech is about, among other things. I, I will tell you that James chapter 4 is not as uh, familiar. James chapter 4 is not probably something that as soon as I, I say, let's go to James chapter 4, you start thinking, oh, this is where pastor's going to be and, and I know this is what he's going to talk about. Because to be honest, there's not a lot of times that we spend in this area. And I'm going to be... First off, we're going to talk about conflict. And uh, the more I study the New Testament, the more I begin to realize that the New Testament church dealt with a lot of conflict. And I'm thankful that this church... most part, we don't see that, and so first off, as I begin to talk about this, it might be easy for you to tune out and say, "Well, our church isn't doesn't have conflict. This is not really for us," and so you kind of tune out. But I want to implore you to uh, look a little bit deeper, not at the certain, certain circumstances in James, but look at the principles that James is trying to teach. Because what I have learned in my life of thirty-seven years is this, life is full of conflict. We have several in our church, my, my father included, several in our church that are licensed counselors. And you know why we have need of licensed counselors? Because there is conflict. And so the, I, I want you to, to, to think about that. We're going to talk about the war that happens in a Christian life because all of this is dealing with the maturity of being a saint of God and that that we realize we use that term and and we use that term you're born again and I'm thankful for that old things passed away all things become new we're born again but that very phrase born again indicates that you ought to mature you ought to grow up if I could use that term You ought to be different now than you were when you first received the Holy Ghost. It ought to be a little easier for you to live for God, a little easier for you to guard your mouth, a little easier for you to to go around the temptations. It's becoming a mature Christian. And I'm going to tell you today, and you know this, but let me just remind you, even in a Holy Ghost-filled life, conflict can arise. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about the war and the will. The first part of this lesson is going to talk about the war that, that we have to be careful we don't get sucked into. And then the second thing that we'll talk about is the will of God. And you're going to find that that, that they work seamlessly, they flow seamlessly together. Have any of you ever heard of the war of the oaken bucket? Have here ever heard of the war of the oaken bucket? I've got a few that, that raise your hands. In eight, not eighteen, in 1325, between two city-states of Bologna—I know that's not really how you pronounce it, but that's how I pronounce it—and Modena, that's kind of around the northern part of Italy, not Israel. Come on, Buford, and uh, it's there. And it was—it really is more than just a war over an oaken bucket. But you know how sometimes in life. You have that straw that breaks the camel's back, and it just, everything pops out from there. But really, it goes back for some 300 years, a struggle between two groups of people there in northern Italy. But it came to a, a head when one side decided to steal the oak bucket from the city well, and it just kind of all went to pot, and they fought, and, and there was a battle. And to this day, it's called the War of the Bucket, or the War of the Oaken Bucket. Or another war, three hundred years seems to be a common time of people arguing and fighting. But there was another one, and, and I, I forgot to write down exactly when it was. But it was when Louis the Seventh returned from the Crusades. So you can kind of put that around the time period uh, that it needs to be. Uh, Louis the the, uh, the Seventh returned from the Crusades, and while he had been fighting the Crusades, he had grown a beard. When he came home, his wife, Eleanor, couldn't stand the beard. She nagged him, she pleaded with him, she begged him to trim the beard and he wouldn't do it. So finally she up and annulled the marriage, said, I'm done. She found herself a new man, King Henry II of England. Now you can imagine if she had married one king in France and now has married another king in England England and France for a long time and probably still don't like each other too much. And for 300 years, a war was raged between France and England all because of a stubborn wife and a husband who refused to love each other and he didn't want to shave his beard and it's called, if you look it up, the War of the Whiskers. The War of the Whiskers. There's a, another, had anybody heard of that, the War of the Whiskers? What about the Battle of Jenkins' Ear? Anybody ever heard of that? It's a minor skirmish in the grand scheme of America, but it was very significant for that colonial place that we call Georgia now. It was that during that time there was land between South Carolina and Florida. And there was a conflict between the English and the Spanish that raged for almost two centuries. And finally there were formal hostilities that began in 1739, only just six years after that colony of Georgia was founded. And it was there, it's the survival hung in the balance as they would fight back and forth. And we know now that the war was centered on claims and land claims and did Spain own it, did England own it but not only was it the land that they fought, they also fought on the seas. Piracy was big during this time and there was a particular incident in which a Spanish privateer or pirate severed the ear of Captain Robert Jenkins in 1731 as punishment for raiding Spain's ships. And so uh, Mr. Jenkins went all the way back to England and took that severed ear and kind of threw it down there in Parliament in England and, and it outraged them. And so they went to war. And I know it was more than that, but they call it the war or the battle of Jenkins' ear war is a fact of life conflict is a fact of life and and it doesn't matter treaties we see that often treaties are broken it doesn't matter ceasefires you can find that that wars happen between nations Wars happen between groups of people and religious understandings. There are so many things. But I will tell you today that in every aspect of our life, there will be conflict. Even so much, now I'm okay in a sense. Now, some of you that are great economic uh, students, you may disagree. But I kind of like it when gas stations go to war with each other. You know, when one puts their price here and the other one puts their price a little bit lower. Now, I realize in the grand scheme of things, the economics of that probably isn't really healthy. But for me, I like that. Conflict becomes inevitable. And so it is that James, choosing to write to people who are saved, choosing to say, this is what I could tell Someone that is living for God I've got, and James could have written more than five chapters if he wanted to I don't, and of course he didn't write in chapters He wrote just in a letter But I don't know how many pages his original letter was over But he could have chosen to write a lot more But in it he decided that one thing he had to talk about Was conflict within the lives of Christian believers And in doing so He tells us that there are three types of of, of wars, and I'm going to use the word spiritual wars. There are three types of wars within a Christian's life that can happen, and then he also tells us how we can stop those wars. And so, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you would turn to the book of James chapter 4, and uh, this tonight, I'm not going to read it necessarily in order, because uh, when I begin to study it, I realized that if you could skip around a little bit, it would make a little more sense. So first off, let me just introduce the chapter with the first three verses. Uh, and, and again, I think I'm reading from the English Standard is what I wrote in my notes. So James chapter 4 verse 1, what causes war, or what causes quarrels and causes fight among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so you're introduced very quickly that there's a conflict going on. James chose to even use uh, the word war, if you will, or at least in this. He he chooses to talk about quarrels and But I want to take you, I want us to read the first, now I want to kind of skip around. I want us to read the first part of of verse 1, and then I also want to jump down to verse 11 and verse 12. Because the first war that you need to be aware of that happens within a Holy Ghost-filled person is if we're not careful, we'll become at war with one another. We'll quarrel with our brothers and our sisters. And so watch this. Let's look just at the first part of James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and causes fight among you? Go down to verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. This one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you you are not a doer of the law but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge and he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you? To judge your neighbor. What causes fights and quarrels among you? This is not a new thing. This is not something that was only in in Jerusalem in the church that James was pastoring at that time. You could go all the way back to the Old Testament. Look in Psalms chapter 133 where it says, Brethren, how good and pleasant shall it be for brethren to dwell together in unity. If you just take a cursory glance at the Bible, you're going to find that conflicts between one another is at the root of a lot of problems. Lot quarreled with Abraham, and their servants quarreled with Abraham, insomuch that finally Abraham said, "Lot, you go one way, and I'm going to go the other way." Lot chose the well-watered plains of 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 uh, where Sodom. Thank you. My brain just went bloop. Uh, he chose the well-watered plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham chose the high mountainous uh valley, or high mountainous fields. Absalom, 2 Samuel, Absalom went to war, literal war, against his father David. The disciples quarreled one with another and they argued who's the greatest of the kingdom? In every epistle that was written to churches, in every epistles of the early church, you discover they had disagreements. The Corinthian church were competing in public meetings. I mean, this is how bad the Corinthian church got. And and I'm kind of paraphrasing and using study. Uh, Paul had to talk a lot about spiritual gifts. And I know, brother, I've preached about it. Brother uh, Perryman has had an entire series that, that he's done on it, but uh, if you can imagine, someone would, would start speaking in tongues in a meeting, and that's okay. We've seen that. That's, it should be a good thing. And someone would interpret, and they'd say, Thus saith the Lord. Brother Mark Miller, you're going to hell. And then they'd sit down. And then Brother Mark Miller would stand up, and, and he'd go, Thus saith the Lord. I'm not, you are. And it happened. They would would use it for their own gain. They would use it to make a point. And I've even seen churches that I have attended, not that I went, you know, they weren't my church that I was at, but in my travels, I've seen that quarrel. That was there in the Corinthian church. They sued each other in the Corinthian church. The Galatian church, Paul said you're biting and devouring each other. In Ephesians, Paul was telling the church in Ephesus, he said, you've got to cultivate spiritual unity. And even Paul's, if if Paul had a favorite church, it'd probably be Philippi. And even then, he talked about two women that couldn't get along with each other. Even in the old churches, if you will, the the, the, the churches in Acts, they had problems. James, when he begins to, to, to look at disagreements, and, and, and he uses the word warring with one another, he breaks it down into a few different kinds, four that, I, I, that, I, that I've been able to see. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 of James, and I'm not going to read it, you can go back. He talks about class wars, that age-old rivalry with those that have and those that have not. And that sometimes the rich, especially in these early churches, the rich man would get the attention and they would ignore the poor man per se. The rich man could flash his money around and get what he wanted, and the the uh, the poor man maybe would not. You have other churches. You you have Paul telling his church there. He says it's not right when you do communion to have the rich people up there eating steak and filet mignon and drinking nice wine and having the poor person out in the back drinking and and eating you know some crackers and some water. He says that's not what it's about. The fellowship that happens within a church should never be divided by class. The Bible tells us very specifically that God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't care about your bank account. God doesn't care who your daddy or mama is. God cares nothing except this, have you been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ and are you mine? And if I'm his, who cares? I'm the same as you. You had to speak in tongues just like I had to speak in tongues. You had to repent just like I had to repent. You had to go down in the water and get your sins washed away just like I did. And so James is is cautioning to realize that the church can never be a church with classes, with social or economic classes. In, in chapter five and, and and I don't I don't want to get into it because we'll spend next week ending the study of James and going to the last chapter five and we'll we'll pick back up on this but in James chapter 5 it talks about uh employment wars and 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 he was he was trying to help those who were employers to treat their their uh, uh employees right and, and so you know it, it's it's only fair if you're going to employ someone pay them what you told them you were going to pay them Don't cheat them, don't lie them, don't try to to get in there. And so it is that he talked about a conflict that can happen between the employer and the employee. And you'll find that a little bit later. The second one that he deals with, and and it goes back to James chapter 1, the last part of James chapter 1, and then uh, in in James chapter 3 verse 13, we will read that, or, or no, we have read that, that was last week. But there were believers in the church that were at war, in the church because they wanted a position. There were some in the church of Jerusalem, but I've seen it all over. They they wanted to be a teacher. They wanted to be a leader. But they weren't doing it in the right manner. They wanted the glory. They wanted the excitement. They wanted to be able to stand behind a pulpit and berate and yell and and, and say, this is what you have to do. And they really weren't realizing that to, to be a leader in a church, the first thing you got to do is you got to learn how to read the word and then edify the church. Now, is there a time for a hard word? Absolutely. Is there a time where you got to dig deep? Mm-hmm. But it's always done in love. I've seen pastors, I've seen church members, I've seen uh, uh, people that, that, that the church gets in a fight because somebody thinks their way is the only way that something can be done. That, that this is the only way you can teach, or this is the only way that you can play the piano, or this is the only way that you can lead a service. And so you've got to be careful you don't get in there. And then, personal wars. Saints speaking evil of one another. Saints judging one another. And it's, it's really just a continuation of James chapter 3, guarding yourself. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 tells us that we are to speak the truth in love. So we can't, love does not mean not telling the truth. It means how do I put this in a loving manner? I'm not to speak evil. I'm not to get involved in rivalries and criticism. And, and, and so I'm, I'm not to, uh, this, this is why Matthew says, if you have aught with your brother, or in the book of Matthew it says, if you have aught with your brother, you don't put it on Facebook. You don't get up and call your best friend and blast him. It says if you have aught with your brother, you go to him and you try to work it out. If that doesn't work, then you go to the pastor or an elder of the church and, and maybe two and say, help me, help me get this through. And you try to win them Now I want you to realize something very carefully When the Bible talks about And, and we read it in the English Standard Version It talks about uh, you know, Be careful how you judge in, in this political correct world We have thrown the word judge out And we have said that nobody can judge And that's not what the Bible says The Bible says The measure in which you judge Is going to be the measure in which you are judged If you tell me a lie and I know you told me a lie. I have every right because the Bible says that a lie is a sin. And I have every right to understand that you are sinning when you tell me a lie. The difference is how do I handle that? How do I deal with that? And so it is, it's a bad thing when, when people in a church, when people in a, in, that are saved, when they begin to fight and quarrel, And war with each other. I find it very interesting that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 verse 21. He said that they may all be one as thou father art in me and I in thee. That they may also be one in us that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The Lord spoke often of unity. And I think that we have to be careful and we have to watch. Let's not war with each other. Now I don't have to spend a lot of time on that. Because I, I love this church. And I think that that you. Do a, a phenomenal job. Trying to work through. Sometimes we have disagreements. Sometimes we may not like. Everything that's going on. But here's the thing. We all belong to the same family. Now my wife's downstairs. I'm, I'm assuming she's watching. Uh, the service down in the nursery. And uh, hopefully you are. Hi Brianne. And I. Uh, But I learned something 16 years ago. It's not worth fighting with each other. I learned that. You know why? It's miserable. I get mad, she gets mad, and you you, you storm out, you say words you don't want to say, and you get aggravated, and hairbrushes are thrown, and doors are slammed, and it's just not worth it. You and I, we belong to the same family. And it's just not worth it to fight. Not only that, the Bible tells us that we have the same Savior. And if He saved me, and I know how bad I was, then I'm going to give mercy because I know He saved you. Not only that, but inside of you and I dwells the same Spirit. God is inside of me. God is inside of you. And if God is guarding my tongue, as we learned last week, then I trust God is guarding your tongue. So don't fight. But the question would would beg to ask, why would churches, why would Holy Ghost fill people, why would saints of God quarrel? The answer lies in the second war. Have you ever had a disagreement with someone or have you ever had an argument or a conflict and then kind of somewhere in that you realized that the reason for the conflict is not what you're discussing. There was something deeper. Anybody ever had that before? You get to that place where you realize the issue is not the issue. There's something deeper. It happens a lot in counseling sessions. Husband and wife mad at each other. They're arguing and, and, and they're, they're griping because the husband puts all of his clothes on the floor and the wife didn't fix the best meal. But to be honest, there's usually something deeper going on. Same is true when it comes to conflict with one another. James answers that as he digs deeper with that conflict and he realizes that conflict with a saint of God, a brother or sister in Christ, stems from something deeper deeper. And stems from something more personal. The answer is, the reason I'm in conflict with you is because, to be honest, I'm in conflict with myself. Because watch what James says. Remember, he said, "What causes fights and quarrels among you? Read that second part. Now, now I want to read, read chapter uh, uh, four, verse one through three. And the answer is, "Why are you fighting against, Why are you fighting with each other? Is it not this? That your passions are at war with you. You desire and not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on yourself. Earlier, if you remember last week, James said in chapter 3, that if you have bitter envying or strife in your heart and glory not and lie not against the truth, for where envy and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Most conflicts and quarrels with our brothers and sisters in Christ it's usually because there is something wrong with us. Why do you think Jesus said don't go get that little speck out of their eye until you get the two by four out of yours? Because there's something wrong with us. That sin that the essence of all sin boils down to one word selfishness. Why did Eve sin in the garden? Selfishness She wanted to be as wise as God She didn't want God to be wiser than her She wanted to become like God Why did Abraham lie about his wife when he went down to Egypt? Selfishness He didn't want them to kill him Because he thought they'd covet his wife Why did Achan cause Israel to be defeated there at Ai? Why? Selfishness he coveted that little silver and that Babylonianish garment. He coveted that more than all of, of Israel's tribe. That's why Isaiah said, We've all turned everyone to our own way. It's more than just saying we've turned to sin, it's saying we've turned to selfishness. And, and here, here's something else watch this. I, I, I've noticed that a lot of quarrels that happen, especially with, with, with church people, we like to disguise it as us being more spiritual than them. In, in Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron, that, that was Moses' brother and sister, they had a huge problem with, with uh, Moses' wife and they were really complaining about her. But to be honest, they really were envious of Moses' authority. And you find that God had to, had to, 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 to challenge Miriam or hand turned leprous because of that. But they, they were trying to say I was more spiritual. What about James and John who, who said, we want to have a special place. Who, who are we gonna, Who's going to be on the right hand in heaven when we get to heaven? Can I sit by you, Jesus? But what really they were saying was, I want to be recognized today. I, I want to be the, the second in command today. I've seen so many of this as a minister, as a pastor I've seen it play over and over, Over people come with a, a spiritual disguise and it sounds like a prayer request. Pastor, I'm really, I'm really, really worried about so and so. Okay? And while sometimes that exists, most of the time there's ulterior motives that are there. Selfish desires, it's a dangerous thing. James says you, 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 you kill, you fight, and you war because you're selfish. Selfish desires lead to wrong actions. James, he, he gives us insight even to when we pray. You ask, you pray, and you don't receive what you're praying for because you're asking, you're praying with wrong motives because you're just wanting to have things that look good. Can I tell you why I don't have a $50,000 bass boat? Because I've prayed about it before. Be honest, y'all don't. Y'all can laugh at me all you want. Y'all might not have prayed about a fifty-dollar bass boat. You prayed about other things. But that's selfish. I've even tried to make it not selfish. Lord, I'll take the men in the church out fishing if you'll. <laughs> you ask selfishly. You want it for you. You're not looking to minister. You're not looking to help. You you ask that, and so it is. You don't get it. If your praying's wrong, your entire spiritual life's going to be wrong. What's the last of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not covet. And I have heard it said and preached, and I've seen it in so many different teachings, that that last commandment is one of the strongest because that last commandment can cause you to break all the other commandments in front of it. One person said it like this, If you covet, you can murder a person. If you covet, it'll cause you to tell a lie. If you covet, it'll cause you to dishonor your parents, to commit adultery. And in one way or another, covetousness will have you violate all of God's law. So it is, you've got to be careful when you're at conflict with others. Look inside. Chances are you're in conflict with yourself. I've had people tell me, um, but I prayed about it, so I know it's okay. I remember I had a, a, a mother of a youth that had heard the pastor preach, and I, in, in my mind it was a, a message very near to the conversation I had with this mother very near but the pastor had preached a few days before so and he had so clearly laid out something in the bible a a, a a biblical standard a biblical principle that we needed to follow and 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 that by not following it you were in danger of your salvation and i mean it was very clear and i remember that mom telling me you know brandon I've prayed about it and God hasn't convicted me about it so i'm not going to do it Why do you have to pray about something that's in the Word of God? It's kind of like you as parents. You've told your child you can't do that, and they go and they ask the other parent. You don't change your mind. That commandment's still there. And so we have to be very careful that we don't become selfish in our praying and that we don't try to, instead of seeking God's will, we try to tell God what He should do for us. And I have seen far too many conflicts in the body of Christ happen because their own self wasn't right. And You better be careful you don't make decisions that will affect the spiritual uh, life of you or the spiritual life of someone else when you're not right with God. Uh, Brother Perryman, I apologize. You you have told me because you've been pre- you've preached a couple messages, and you, you you've told me several times a, a phrase. But basically, sometimes we make decisions, and we're not right with God, and so we're making those decisions on the wrong footing, and they affect us and they affect others forever. Many a families, many a family problem, many a church problem, many a a a a a you know, interpersonal problem would be solved if we would just examine ourselves and say, can I get right with me? But we got to go deeper. The conflict with one another stems usually from a conflict within ourself and last, the root of every conflict, the root of every war, whether it's internal or external, is we are usually at war with God. The beginning in, 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 uh, in, in the Garden of, of Eden, it was perfect, it was perfection. Rebellion entered, and they became at war with God. How, and you say, whoa, 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 I, I live for God, I'm filled with the Holy Ghost, I pay my tithes, I come to church. How could I ever be at war with God? Well, I'm glad you asked this, and I want to take you there. Let's read uh, verse 4 through 10. This is how you can get at war with God. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy jealously over the spirit that is made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, lest your laughter be turned to mourning and your your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt thee. If you tune out of anything else, I want you to tune back in right now. You know how I'd, I say sometimes James has these just perfect things that you can put on a sticky note and put it on the mirror while you brush your teeth and read it. Here it is. Are you ready? The first, there, there, there's three enemies that you got to be careful you don't get involved with so that you don't become at conflict with God. L- let me put it a, a better way. The thing that I desire most in my life Is to be at peace with my fellow brother and my fellow sister. I want to be peace. I want to have peace with myself. But first and foremost, I want to have peace with God. And let me tell you, James tells us there are three enemies. That if you hang around with, chances are you and God are not going to have peace. The first one is the world. This is not the people that live in the world. This is the world's society, the system. And and we know this. This world is anti-God. This world is is anti-Bible. And we see that day in and day out. And this world leads to a path of destruction. There's nothing in this world that seems to be good. Lot was a friend of the world, but Abraham was called a friend of God. So here it is in, in, in it friendship with the world. If you were writing notes or you have any way, I want you to write this down. First, it usually starts with friendship with the world. Rubbing shoulders, hanging out. If you're not careful, James chapter 1 verse 27 says, then you become spotted by the world. Now suddenly it's not just rubbing shoulders, you're taking on their attributes. And finally, It will lead to the approval of the world. I have no desire for this world to approve me. There's only one approval that matters to me and that is, does God approve? Because when I get to heaven, it's not going to be a popularity contest. How many people like me or approve of me? It's going to be one judge and one alone. Does He approve of me? Let me put it another way. You can love the world and then Romans 12 says or, or, or friendship with the world means to love the world. That's 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. And then Romans 12, 2 says after you love the world it makes it real easy to be conformed to the world. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that the sad result is you'll be condemned with the world. You ever, growing up Hopefully not as an adult, but growing up, have you ever been guilty by association? I have. In the subdivision we lived in, it was—I mean, it had multiple streets, but it was only one entrance into the subdivision. It was everything was dead end. I don't know how many houses were in there, but when, when our family got there, uh, and and I think it was '91. It seems like is when we moved that subdivision. Not all the houses were built, and especially in the back where we were. So we had a lot of fun. We'd go explore the houses that were being built. But in the two streets, my street and the next street, and they weren't very big, there were five Brandons. I had never met another Brandon in my life, it seemed like, but all of a sudden, in our one subdivision, there were five Brandons. If anything ever happened, guess who got blamed? Brandon, guilty by association. If you associate with this world, you'll be guilty by association. And you'll be condemned with the world. So I want want you to think about Friendship with the world can lead to being spotted by the world. And it can lead to the approval of the world. Loving the world leads to conforming to the world. If you're not careful, it leads to being condemned with the world. The Bible here in in James, he he does it very carefully. And he's not the only one who does it. But he says friendship with the world, he compares it to adultery. That the believer Romans seven chapter or Romans chapter seven verse four that whole first part of Romans seven says that our salvation leads us if you will to being married with Christ, and 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 going to the world is an unfaithful thing. It's leaving God. It's leaving him and going there. And and you can read that all through the the prophets uh, in the Old Testament. They constantly talked about Israel leaving their first love, always talked about Israel uh, whoring after the idols and, and committing adultery with the idols. This world is an enemy of God, and whoever wants to be a friend of this world cannot be a friend of God. This doesn't mean you can't love the people of the world. It doesn't mean that you can't go fishing. It doesn't mean you can't go shopping. We're not talking about being hermits. It's talking about being conformed to this world and its value system rather than the Bible and the value system of Christ. But the second enemy is the flesh. That flesh, that old nature that we inherited from Adam that's so prone to sin, it's not our body. This body that I have, this body is neutral. It's the flesh, and and we use that word flesh. It's the old nature. And when when you and I were saved, when you and I were repented and filled with the Holy Ghost and baptized, what happens was we yielded to God, and God gave us a new nature. Old things passed away, a new nature. But if we're not careful... We will have an old nature within us that we don't remove or we don't reform. It doesn't change. And so for that, there is a battle. Watch what Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 says. I'm reading from the New International Version. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit desires what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. That's why James says it's the lust that is in your members, that old nature. And when you live for yourself, when you live for the old nature, you are grieving the Holy Spirit. So I'm telling you, Romans, and see, James is not the only one that this plays out. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 and verse 6, or I'm sorry, verse 7, he said, the carnal mind is enmity, Against God. That word enmity, to and, and this probably isn't the, the clearest or, or the best definition, but it's easy to understand. Enmity means enemy. Our flesh is an enemy against God. Our carnal mind is at war with God. Again, let's go back to Abraham. Abraham had the mind of God. He walked with God and he enjoyed peace with God. He was called the friend of God. Lot had a carnal mind. His flesh said, oh, look at these well-watered plains of Sodom. Who cares how bad Sodom is? I'll never go in Sodom. I just want to be around it. And his selfishness and his flesh drawed him there. And pretty soon, he's now near Sodom. And then he's in Sodom. And then finally, he's got a political office, so to speak, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Abraham had a spiritual mind. Lot had a carnal mind. And the Bible says this in Romans 8, 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Don't be at war with God. It's a bad place to get. And then the final enemy is the devil. We know that that pride was the great sin of Satan. It's what caused him to get kicked out, Lucifer, being kicked out of heaven. And in doing so, he now uses that same pride to war against you and try to get us to fight against God. And so it is that that where God keeps saying, I want you to be humble, blessed are the meek, Satan starts coming in and he says, I want you to be proud. What did he tell Eve? He said, you shall be as God. Satan loves to come in and throw that there. 1 Timothy says, be careful that you're not lifted up with pride lest you fall in the condemnation of the devil. I love that phrase, that God gives more grace. But someone said, as God gives more grace, the devil wants you to depend on yourself. I don't need his grace. Now, I'm not against the do-it-yourself uh, this DIY that's, that's running rampant. I mean, every day on my Facebook page, that there's here's how you do it yourself. And I'm okay with that. I love doing that. And there's TV shows devoted. But can I tell you, you better be careful that that do-it-yourself mentality doesn't leak into your spiritual walk with God. You can't do it on your own no matter how much the devil tells you you can. Because I'll tell you right now, there's nothing in you. The Bible says in you dwells no good thing. There's nothing that you can be proud of, even though the devil tries to lift you up. The devil tries to inflict you You can do it. You don't need God. Those three enemies that want to turn us away from God, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So how can you win? I'm glad you asked that. Because James gives us, not only does he give us three wars, not only does he give us three uh, enemies, he gives us three things that we need to do. The first one you need to do, verse 7 tells us, submit yourself to God. That word submit is a military term. It means to get in the proper rank. I don't know if any of you have military backgrounds, but you know what I'm talking about. The only way that you can, can, can live is if you know your place and you understand who has a uh, rule over you. If there's any part of your life that you don't submit to the Lord That part of your life is going to have conflict That part of your life you're going to be fighting And so Paul says Neither give place to the devil That's in Ephesians Neither give place to the devil Don't give him an opportunity Can I tell you that, that, that When you have been filled with the Holy Ghost And I want you to listen to this carefully When you have been saved The devil cannot just jump into your life and buffet you There has to be a foothold given Neither give place to the devil. The way that you give a foothold to the devil is an unsubmitted part of your life. You don't give it to God to cover. And so it is. How do you resist the devil? Submit to the Lord. King David committed adultery with Bathsheba, killed her husband in almost a year, at least nine months of the pregnancy, but I would say maybe even longer. Nine months or so. He had hid that sin. No one knew what was going on. And he was not at peace with God. You don't have to raise your hand, but if you've ever been in sin, and you knew you were in sin, and you'd come to church, you know that battle that goes. You know it seems like every time the pastor preaches, he's preaching at you, and you fight, and you wrestle, and you can't find peace, and you try to go to sleep. And there was war between God and David. And if you'll read Psalms 32 or Psalms 51, David enunciated that battle, and he paid a price at war with God. He lost his son. He lost parts of the kingdom. But finally he submitted God. That submission is an act of the will. And and it's what Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. If you want to help the conflicts, if you want to stop the wars, then submit to God. Verse 8 of James chapter 4 tells us we ought to draw near to God. How do you draw near? He tells us, confess your sins and ask for, your, for his cleansing. What does he say? Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That word purify comes from the Greek. It means chase. And it's that same understanding of adultery. It means don't do that, to be pure. Be pure. If you want to draw near, you've got to be willing to confess your sin. Be willing to say, Lord, I haven't given you everything. Lord, there's been some selfishness that keeps rising up in me, and I'm so sorry. And the third thing you need to do is humble yourself before God. Somebody wrote it this way. It's possible to submit the outside, outward parts of your life and not be humbled inwardly. That's the soldier. Who, who looks the part and he does all the things he's commanded to, but inside he hates it all. He just doesn't want to get in trouble. Let me give you, if that doesn't make sense, let me help you this. You remember uh, old Jonah? Jonah rebelled and he was at war with God. not well, well, watch this. Jonah, let's take Jonah's life. Jonah's sin, what did Jonah's sin do? Well, first off, he was at war with God. Second off, he was at conflict with himself. He hated himself. He knew he shouldn't be it. And third, he put an entire ship at jeopardy. That whole ship perhaps would have sunk if Jonah wouldn't have been cast out in the ocean. So that goes back to what we started this whole uh, lesson on. Jonah finally repents and he goes to Nineveh and he preaches to Nineveh and God saves the entire city from destruction. And Jonah got mad. And Jonah cried. And, And for lack of a better word, God spanked Jonah. I mean, he just, I mean, just knocked him upside the head. And Jonah submitted outwardly. But inside, he didn't change. Inside, there was no humbleness. That's why David said, A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. Or, or, Isaiah, God says, To the man will I look even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. The psalmist wrote in Psalms 34, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth those that be of such a contrite spirit. If you'll do these three things, if you'll draw near to God, if you'll let God cleanse you, and if you'll let God forgive you, you'll find that almost every conflict Will cease. You won't be at war with God, you won't be at war with yourself, and you won't be at war with others. Because Isaiah, God said it this way in Isaiah, The work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. If you'll let me, I don't think I'm twisting the scripture too far out of its meaning. But Isaiah chapter 9 says, The government shall be upon his shoulders. Call his name, Wonderful Counselor of the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. As I read somewhere, if you'll put the government of your life on his shoulders, then he'll become the Prince of Peace in your life. I'm gonna do it quickly. I'm almost done. You can begin to come, Sister Cindy. But we began the chapter talking about being at war with God, and we end this chapter talking about the will of God. And those two are so related. When you are out of the will of God, you are probably at war with God. When you were out of the will of God, you probably got a, a battle going in on yourself and other places. I don't have time to go through it all, and, and, and I wish I could, but when you begin to read, and, and, and well, let's, let's just read the Bible verse, and then we can, we can, let me just give you a few points. Verse 13 of James chapter 4. Come now. You who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all boasting is evil. Whoever knows to do the right thing and fails to do it, for him... It is sin. We don't... (laughs) We use that term, the will of God, and sometimes we use it very lightly and we don't talk about it. And so James wanted to talk about the will of God, and in doing so, as he's prone, he gives us three different attitudes that a person has toward the will of God. The first one are those that just simply ignore God's will. And I don't know, maybe James was addressing the, the wealthy merchants in that church that had discussed and boasts of their plans and, and there was no evidence that they ever sought the will of God. They were just looking at, at can they get rich and, and maybe they just thought they could do it all on their own and their own understanding and their own economic knowledge and, and, and things and they said we'll just do our plans and they'll succeed and... But James says, let me tell you something about ignoring the will of God. He said, first off, your life is far too complex to live it without God. Think about it. There's today or tomorrow. There's buying, there's selling, there's getting, there's losing, going here, there's going there. Life is made up of of people and places and activities. And and you've got time and all of that. And you've got all these decisions that you're going to have to make and apart from the will of god it's all unknown you can't add one one hour to your day you can't add one day to your life you don't know what tomorrow holds you may think you have all of the knowledge but but this world doesn't this world exists not in a nice cookie cutter thing this world exists in chaos because again this world system does not follow god and anything that's outside of god is chaos Just about the time you think you've got the stock market all figured out and you go invest all that money in a sure fund, chaos happens and the unknown kicks in. Can I tell you today, your life is far too complex and crazy for you to live ignoring or not even paying attention to the will of God. Not only is life complex, but it's uncertain. writer of Proverbs said in Proverbs 27 boast not of tomorrow for you don't know what a day may bring forth have any of you ever made long term plans maybe you planned a vacation months away a year away and then when you finally get there life changes things change and you can't do it one writer said the the, the, I think what is the well laid plans of mice and men often go astray the uncertainty of life is such that you don't even know what next minute's gonna take you, don't, you have no idea what's gonna happen in the next few minutes much less know what's gonna happen in October it's like the parable of Jesus in Luke chapter 12, when the man, that farmer, he had that crop that was just incredible. And so he sits back and he says, I'm going to, my barns are too small, so I'm going to build bigger barns. And if you will, he was saying, I'm going to be set for life. I've got everything I need. My, my 401k is perfect. My Roth IRA is perfect. I will have need of nothing. And that night he died. Uncertainty of life. The Lord said, You know, that man, the, the farmer said, I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat and drink and be merry. And this was God's reply to the uncertainty of life. You're a fool. This night your soul shall be required of thee. Here's the thing. Life is uncertain to me. I don't know what tomorrow holds. But I know the God that knows tomorrow. And if I listen to the will of God, He'll help me through the tomorrow. If the if the complexity and the uncertainty of life don't get you, the brevity of life will get you. It's but a vapor. Job said it over and over. My days are like a weaver's shuttle that just flashes back and forth, or it, it, it's like a shadow that passes. Most of us count our our life by years. You have a birthday. Today is is. Uh, Dwayne's birthday, Dwayne Andrew's birthday I forgot to ask him how old he is He's, he's old he's, he's old We count the years And some of you stop counting the years But God says Number your days And So it is that If we'll listen to the will of God Even if we have a short life he can walk us through, it. and then the frailty of man—you can boast and you can brag, but it's all evil. One one philosopher, I think he, he may have been a theologian—I'm not exactly sure—but he wrote it this. He said, "Man proposes, but God disposes." I'll just tell you right now, I can't make it without the will of God. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough, I don't understand enough. And so I'd like to tell you today, it would be absolutely pointless for you to ignore the will of God. The second thing, the second type of people that, uh, that, that deal with the will of God is those that disobey God's will. They're the ones that know the will of God and choose to ignore it. It's such an incredible uh, amount of pride that I know what you want me to do, God. I just don't want to do it I know what I should do I just really don't care and Peter said it this way it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to after they have known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered unto them a person that says I know the will of God but I don't care that is the ultimate pinnacle of pride and pride leads to destruction I'm going to tell you right now, the will of God is not something that you can accept or reject. I'd go this far. The will of God is going to happen whether you follow it or not. And God's will always has two elements to it. It has the positive element that if you follow God's will, this is the blessing. And if you ignore or disobey God's will, the other side, this is the curse. So you can't take it or leave it. It's going to happen. The idea would be or the understanding is what side of God's will are you going to be on? And the final one is those that obey God's will. Some people make it just a point, if God will, if the Lord wills, I pray it would be more than just something you say but it would be the attitude that's inside your heart. The will of God. Now there is a universal will of God that's found in these Bibles. It's the will of God that you don't lie. It's the will of God that you stay pure. It's the will of God that you repent. It's the will of God that you rejoice and pray and thank God. There's also a will of God that is not so easily laid out in this word. It's a will of God for you. There's a plan that God has for you that might be just a tad different from the direction that He leads me. I will tell you today, but I firmly believe it was God's will for me to come to here. It's God's will for me to, to, to lead and pastor. And, and there's a whole set of circumstances that I've got to do to stay in God's will here. God may not have called you to pastor, but there is a will of God that you have. And, and God's will is not some, some soda machine. I heard it, I, I saw it written that, that it's not like you go up to God's will and you put a couple quarters in there and out pops the soda you pick. That's not how it works. The will of God is a relationship, a living relationship between you and Him. And so it is. If you'll get connected to Him, He'll help you. Then, well, somebody said, well, how do do I know God's will? It's real simple God's will is not hard to understand. In fact there are some things in the Bible that is so easy to understand that if you'll just start doing that it'll kick you off. God's will is that you should not perish but come to repentance. That's God's will. It's God's will that you don't lie. It's God's will that you live for Him and so you can start there. And then John chapter 7 verse 17 says if you're willing to obey God is willing to reveal His complete will not only does God want you to follow his will but God wants you to understand his will and here's the thing there's times when a child is little they don't understand the why they understand the what don't do that they don't understand why you said that but as we grow older we understand Psalms chapter 103 tells us that he made, that God made his way known to Moses he made his way known to the acts of Israel I'm going to tell you today God wants you to know his will and he wants you to prove his will it means to prove by experience. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It's like playing a musical instrument. The more you practice, the better you become. The more you read His Word, the more you pray, the more you seek after Him, the more you get in that relation to Him, the more He reveals His will, will and the more that you obey, the easier it is to see. And Then, finally, do it from your heart. Don't just follow Him with the outside. Let your heart be there. And if you'll follow the will of God, and I want to invite you to stand. That way you know I'm almost done. Here's the benefits of doing God's will. A deeper relationship with Him. It, it, it's, it's where you can, when you are in will, when you are in step with God, when you're in fellowship with God, you just kind of start seeing your prayers getting an answered, because you're asking right. Not this is my will, but Lord, this is what what you want from me. And again, I, I I bring it here. What is your attitude toward the will of God? Do you just ignore it and don't ever ask it, and you just kind of go on your way and you try to live without His His guidance? Or do you know God's will and just choose not to obey it and you rebel against it? Those are going to bring sorrow. Those are going to bring ruin. Those are going to bring conflict, wars, quarrels. But if you know Him, if you love Him, and if you obey His will, I don't know that your life will be easier, but your life will be better. Your life will be holier. Your life will be more powerful. Your life will be great in the presence of God. I want you to just lift your hands for just one moment. And I want you just to take a minute. You've heard the word of God. Now this is your moment to talk to the author. Perhaps there was something in there that that God convicted you of. And you and God need to have a quick conversation while it's fresh on your mind. I don't want you to have to wait till tomorrow and you forget about it. Right now, you need to tell God. You you may follow this conversation up later in personal prayer and devotion, but right now, talk to the author. You've heard his word. He's leading you. He's telling you his will. He's telling you how you can solve the conflict. He's giving you advice right now. Because that's the kind of God I serve. Lord, I love you. Lord, I'm so very thankful for your word. In study, I've learned so much. In study, I've had to apply it to my own life. And God, next week when we wrap this up, we're going to have been better for going through the book of James and those proverbs and those understandings of how can I be a mature Christian? How can I be more like you? And I give you thanks for your word. Lord, would you let your word be a lamp to my feet, a light to my path? Would you let that word illuminate my heart, illuminate my soul, my life, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Would you go with God? Would you go with others? I'm so glad you're here. In Jesus' name.